After the murk-filled skies of Shanghai, the Virginia mornings taste clean. The American flags that flutter from buildings on my way to Langley remind me that this country is still in motion. It's a work in progress. This experiment in government of and by and for the people. We don't always get it right. But, after living under a government that censors the internet and imprisons families for going to church, I swell with gratitude that we keep striving, drawing ever closer in our asymptote to freedom. It says dirtbags in the title, we can do what we want. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Мы открылись миру, открылись, отказались от вмешательства в чужие дела, от использования войск за пределами страны. И нам ответили доверием, солидарностью и уважением. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. I make the money, man. I roll the nickels. The game's mine. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Enlightened Dirtbags podcast. I'm here as always with my co-host Jonah Condro, and I am, of course, version two. Uh, Jonah, why don't you tell us a little bit about this book we got going on this episode? Okay, we got a badass book. It's called Life Undercover, Coming of Age in the CIA, and it's written by one Amaryllis Fox. It's interesting with this book. You know, when I first bought this, I was on a huge espionage kick. Um, I actually read one of the other books that's coming up in our in our season, but I was kind of just on this like spy thriller kick, right? And I saw this and I was like, oh damn, like young female in the CIA, this is going to be crazy. Like it's going to be super intense. And reading it through a second time now, it almost feels like a study on human psychology and emotion more than like an espionage thriller, you know? Yeah, it surprised me because I think there's a way we all think the CIA operates. And it's very much, I think, tied to the sort of Hollywood version of what we think the CIA is and sort of like the the internet culture version of how we think the CIA works. And when we're reading uh, Life Undercover and we're reading Amaryllis Fox's sort of uh, memoir of like becoming a, a very young CIA agent and then eventually li- leaving the CIA... Um, she she paints it with a very different brush than than sort of any of the preconceptions that I had about what it would be like to be in like post nine eleven CIA. Yeah, and I really liked that she kind of dispels the whole James Bond idea right away. She kind of even like calls out. She's like, the CIA and being an agent isn't like being James Bond. You know, it's not all tuxedos and fancy alcoholic beverages i actually really liked the way she opened this book she kind of jumps you into a bit of uh, tension right away when she's walking through the streets in the middle east and she's on a job and she's kind of scouting out the area ahead of time and she's talking about someone that's following her and she mentions we also kind of dive right into the dynamic of her being female as well right away right she talks about how she has a tail and she doesn't know You know, is this a terrorist? Is this another intelligence agency? Or is it just some creep because she's a young American female walking down the streets by herself? 
it, she really hits the dynamic on the head right away. And I like that you brought that up because I don't think it's sleazy to say, and I think this is sort of important for a review of this book, is like she's an attractive young woman. I think that what she looks like and how she would operate in the world, I think that's important for considering her experience in the CIA. And she sort of remind me a little bit of like a, she's kind of got like a Julia Stiles sort of vibe. If you remember that actress from like the, the 2000s, Julia Stiles, that's what she sort of reminds me of, right? And I don't want to like try to sexualize Amaryllis Fox, but you raise a very good point. Like when she's being followed, one of the last things she thinks of is, is this some weird dude that's following me because like I'm a young white woman in Pakistan, right? So I think that's something important to consider when we're talking about her experience in the CIA and the shit that she gets into. Absolutely. And then, of course, that's not all, right? Like, as we get into it, and we'll cover it later on, uh, you really get the feeling that she takes a different path than most of the previous agents. You know, there was always like a uh, locate and destroy type of mentality. You know, figure out who the target is, go in, eliminate the target. Whereas she kind of looks at it in a more compassionate way, I guess. To her, she wants to eliminate future targets through converting the current ones, you know, like making people understand that maybe nuclear weapons are not the way to go. But let's just get into a little bit of uh, background here. So her birth name is actually Amaryllis Damarell Thornburr, but uh, she goes by Amaryllis Hope Fox, which is one of the coolest names ever. Born in September 22, 1980, New York City. Her education is University of Oxford and Georgetown University. And she actually became one of the youngest female agents ever at the age of 22, assigned to non-official cover, which is, I didn't really understand this about the CIA, but there's official cover and non-official cover, right? Whereas official cover, you would be kind of working directly with an embassy. You're, you're kind of a little bit more protected, right? Whereas she gets non-official cover, so you're more behind the lines you have uh, a complete alias that you have to memorize you need to completely cover yourself you get a little bit of support through like their weird email techniques but for the most part like you're out there on a limb and just hoping it goes well and uh she served for eight years and left in 2010 so she got almost a decade in just speaking of their weird email it's like uh covcom i think it is is the acronym that they use and she describes in when she's kind of going through the process of becoming a CIA agent, when she's given like her phone and her laptop, there's like an IT tech guy. What they do is it's sort of like a, a hidden like labyrinth that you have to go through in the computer. Like there's a series of things that you have to do to be able to run the program, to be able to gain access to this secure email. And it's different for each agent and it's different for each device that they use. Right. So, she's talking about using like her phone or versus her computer there's like all these weird steps that she has to do in a particular order to gain access to the program to be able to like communicate with the people back at headquarters right because she's on non on non-official cover whereas the agents that are working undercover in like an embassy overseas they just pick up the phone right yeah exactly and it's funny like it sounds complicated to us but in reality this is probably a bit of an archaic system like you're talking 15 20 years ago it was probably pretty cutting edge at the time but now i'm sure it's far more advanced 
But also it was interesting the way that she would communicate with a target, you know, like the system of starting an email address, typing out an email to someone and putting it in the drafts folder and not sending it. And then the other person also has the password and they sign into that email address and they check the drafts folder and you communicate to each other that way by never actually sending anything. So it can't be tracked. I thought that was a pretty neat way to do it. This isn't actually the first time that I've heard of spy folk, I guess, or the myths attached to, uh, you know, like terror organizations and people trying to infiltrate, infiltrate and gain intelligence. I have heard of this technique being used before. You know, I don't know if you can still use that method today because a lot of the times there's like two-factor authentication and then they want to like email your other email to make sure that it's actually you. So like I'm sure there's still not like the like the big email addresses are like the most popular email. Like I'm sure you could still use this method today, but you know, certainly back then it's just like, it's, it's almost ingenious method of communicating. Right. Absolutely. And she said that their targets would actually use the same way to communicate with each other. So it's not like they were infinitely more advanced. So the book really starts out once we get past this little intro section here, which talks about a, a bit of her espionage work later on in life, it goes right back to being a kid. And this being my second time through this book, I found this really fascinating, actually. There was a lot of little details I saw that really lead up to her being an agent. And even, like, the way her grandmother would get her to, like, play memory games with cards when she was a kid. There's so many things that just added up to her being such a phenomenal agent. What was the other thing her grandmother did? She had an adopted step-parent, I guess. Like, her grandparents, like, adopted some guy or whatever he was like she was like the same age as this guy that they adopted and they would have to like swim underneath the ice in the family pool in the backyard and then come up on the other side so you're like it kind of sounded like she was already sort of in training before like long before she was ever in training yeah exactly and then she has a couple pivotal moments that kind of seem like a bit of a catalyst for her you know one of her best friends dies when she was i think she was eight years old One of her best friends dies in a terrorist attack that blows up uh, the Pan Am flight. And she kind of first starts to see this side of the world, this evil in the world, and doesn't really understand it at the time, but I think it, it really lights that flame. And then in high school, she ends up missing a class. I think she skipped class to go to the library to just read all these books. And when she comes back, they have to do, um, like an essay, or a presentation on certain topics. And the only topic left is the situation in Burma. The uh, revolts that had happened, I think it was in 1988, kind of a democratic uprising. And there was this one main character, uh, Sue, I think it's pronounced Chi, to be honest, but it's K-Y-I is how it's spelled. And she was like this female revolutionary almost that helped ignite the flame of democracy in Burma. And so she does uh, a study on her and gets and is really fascinated by it. And then after high school, actually just kind of goes out and does her own espionage work <laughs> to like infiltrate this com- this country as like a fake journalist, right? Where they're they're kind of being controlled where they're at. It has a bit of a North Korea vibe, right? They're like you can only go with your tour guide, and they're always watching you. And you know, de- parting ways from your tour guide is enough to get you arrested, right? And her and her friend that are there, they're like communicating to their other group of people through notes in the top of a toilet tank and some like 
cafe or bar. Like, it already sounds like spy work. And she's like 18 years old or something at this point. It's crazy. And they end up sneaking an interview, breaking away from their, I guess, chaperone is what you could call it, and getting an interview interview with this Su Chi and stealing away the the video footage in an interesting way. (laughs) (laughs) She kind of, so they have a pen with decoy, a decoy reel in it. Right. And then she has to smuggle the real footage out inside her vagina. Yeah. (laughs) Just to keep from getting caught. And it's a good thing because they do get caught, right? Once they try to go back and obviously the alarms have been raised because they split from their tour guide and whatever. And her and her friend, get captured and taken to an airplane hangar surrounded by razor wire where they spend 24 hours listening to people being tortured behind closed doors while they're guarded by children with assault rifles smoking cigarettes. <laughs> like, it's it's such an obscure scenario, you know? And when she comes back from that is when she finally decides, like, you know what, I, I've got another path to take. And she she frames her life like she finishes high school. She takes the money that her mom gave her for a prom dress, and that's how she gets to Thailand and then sort of funds this sort of uh, amateur journalistic sort of espionage and, you know, pseudo sort of spy work by getting the interview. But she she frames her life where it's like, well, okay, I could go to uh, this like Navy Academy and eventually maybe get a job at NASA, or I could go to Oxford and study law and some other stuff. She looks at her life as like a fork, and then she ultimately picks the path of going to Oxford because she eventually wants to go back, and and she has a job lined up, which she doesn't take, but she I think she kind of knew from a young age what her calling was, right? Yeah, so she uh, went to Oxford for theology and law and was actually approached once previously in the UK, right, by a separate intelligence agency that she never really finds out the true identity of. And uh, she turns them down. She goes, no, your cloak and dagger approach isn't really how I see the world. It's not, it doesn't align with, with my views, right? And it's not until later on that the CIA approaches her because she, I think it was when she was in Oxford, she makes an algorithm that, tracks uh it was like most likely places for there to be like terrorist groups based on civil unrest and poverty and all of this and of course you make an algorithm like that the cia is like hey what's going on here (laughs) and flags her and tracks her down and has a sit down with her and i think at this point she kind of understood a little more that this might be the way she has to go if she wants to approach things head on yeah, I think it's after, I think she graduated Oxford and I think she was back at the United States uh, doing her master's degree in like Georgetown or something like that. And that's when she develops this uh, algorithm. And she was looking at basically all the details of previous terror, where previous terror attacks happened or where they originated. And something that she pointed out is like the ratio between hookah bars and uh, I can't think of the Islamic work now, but there's basically like a, like a theology school for Islam. It just has like a, an Arabic word that I can't remember. And so she would look at things like, okay, how many hookah bars are here? Okay, well, how many of these places of study are there? And used a bunch of other data points to be able to predict 
if and when there might be like another terrorist attack, right? So of course the CIA is like, um, yeah, so do you want to come down for an interview or what? <laughs> Before we get too far here, I want to backtrack just briefly to Burma. So she mentions Ni Win, the previous leader, who basically bankrupt Burma on his own. This was crazy. I kind of passed by it. And then I got a little bit distracted, I think, with my cats. We got a wasp in the house, and one of my cats went insane. And so I went back, and I was, I was listening to it again, and I kind of caught it again for a second time. She mentions about how the previous leader of Burma decided that nine was his lucky number and that any currency denominations not divisible by nine no longer had any value, which means a huge portion of the citizens, their savings were just eradicated like it went from one of the richest areas to one of the poorest immediately just because he felt that nine was his lucky number so i decided to look into that a little more because i was like this sounds crazy this sounds like a wild story so i looked into it a little more to verify it and then along the way found out a little bit more so apparently he also decided that everyone in the country should drive on the right-hand side of the road, despite them only having right-hand drive vehicles. A little bit backward, right? Meaning that when buses stop, they unload the passengers into the middle of the street. So the whole oh. country just has to flip. But this that's not even the crazy part. This is why he did it. His advisors had told him that the country, the citizens of the country, had been starting to lean too much to the left politically. Oh. And so... <laughs> This is some sort of symbolism. He said, you all have to drive on the right side of the road now. Oh, man. It's insanity. Apparently, like, he regularly bathed in dolphin blood. He shut down an entire motorway one time just so he, for whatever crazy reason, could walk backwards across one of these overpasses. Just madness. So, like, when she's in Burma, she's seeing the the later effects of this ruler that just crippled the country, right? It was just madness, and I actually dove down the rabbit hole on that a little bit with a bunch of other leaders. And for anyone that's that's listening to this right now, if if you need some insane entertainment, just dive down that rabbit hole of the insane things that that leaders have done. Just a prime example of when someone has too much power and nobody can tell them no on anything, they will do the craziest shit ever. It's absolute insanity. Anyways, I had to get that in there because... I was so glad that my cat had distracted me. I went back for a second time and I was like, wait a minute. He just bankrupted the country because he thought nine was his lucky number. I need to look into this. I'm glad we came back to Burma because um, I really didn't know really anything. Like I remember hearing stuff in the news like when I was younger. I didn't really understand what the hell was going on. But when she essentially snuck into the country under the guise that she was a newlywed with, um, I think this guy was a banker, but he did documentaries sort of as like a hobby, right? And so they were in the country under the guise that they were newlyweds, but they, were, they wanted to film the protests that were planned for uh, September 9th, 1999, right? It was, it was supposed to be like a callback to the uh, uh, riots in, uh, of 8888 in 1988, right? Right. But uh, so part of the stipulations about being in Burma was that they had to you know, essentially be followed around by like quote a tour guide. It was basically somebody just like spying on them and kind of be in their mind or they take a boat trip to see a, an authentic uh, Burmese village, right? Like a traditional village. 
but she describes it as sort of like this very North Korean propaganda village, right? Where, you know, there's these villagers that are just sort of like smiling and waving from the shore of the river, right? And you can tell that, you know, there's no livestock around. There's, you know, this is just very much like a stage act or a play, right? And everything's sort of props. There's there's nothing really to give this any indication that this is an actual real village. It's just sort of like showing the tourists like, oh, look at how happy the native villagers are, right? Whereas, you know, this crazy dictator like basically wiped everything out and decided, you know, like bankrupted the country and basically ruined Burma, right? In this time. Yeah, like it's a historically accurate depiction of the culture, except it's the only place left like that because he ruined everywhere else. Yeah. And he yeah. just keeps this place as like a almost feels like a at gunpoint type situation. Like you'll do this for the tourists or else. I think another important thing to note is that she went off to uh, Bosnia in 21 to help kids uh, left orphaned by the Srebrenica massacre, I believe it's pronounced. Um, it just, it, again, it just really goes to show, you know, the compassion she had for the downtrodden people of the world. This is, she didn't really know exactly where she was going. She just wanted to help people. Now, that sort of attitude is a very different way of thinking when you're challenging your own assumptions about what a CIA operative does, right? Because here we've got somebody that's very steeped in the idea that like humanitarianism is good and the promotion of democracy is good and, you know, locking up elected leaders like Aung Young Soon Ki, right, in, in Burma, right, and and essentially sneaking into the country to get an interview with her, like, this is not someone that you would expect to find themselves in the CIA. And I think when you're reading about Amaryllis's childhood, the way that she grew up, the education that she had, the opportunities that were before her, where her interests were taking her, where she was finding herself uh, before going to University of Oxford and then before doing like her master's degree, it's kind of like, well, wait a second, like, you were connecting the dots and we could see where this path was going, right? To be like the sort of humanitarian hero or this humanitarian aid worker. And then all of a sudden there's this like hard left turn into the CIA and Langley, right? So I think that's what makes this a really curious story. And I think that's what makes reading about Amaryllis's sort of coming of age story in the CIA extra important and really entertaining and enthralling. Yeah, and it seems like the thing that really causes that shift is there was a writer named Danny Pearl who was kind of like her writing hero, who she had met a few times. He ends up getting kidnapped in Karachi while he's working on a story. And uh, weeks go by of just seeing him on TV in chains, holding up newspapers to show that he's it's still current and he's still alive. And then one day she sits down at like a little restaurant and on the TV is a video of his head being sawed off of his body by a terrorist group. And I think that that really piqued her interest in the, in the espionage side of things. Because, like, there's only so much you can do with charity organizations, right? You can help downtrodden people, but you're never really going to change why they're there. You know, you're not, you're not going to affect dictators. You're not going to affect terrorist groups by helping starving people, right? And so when the CIA approaches her, she sees it as, her opportunity to do more, right? Yeah, so like at this point, she's got a childhood friend, Laura, who dies in a terrorist attack, um, a plane bombing, right? Uh, and then she's got, uh, yeah, Danny gets abducted and then beheaded, unfortunately. So now she's got, okay, two close people in her life, 
that have been killed by acts of terrorism or terrorist organizations. And now she's in doing her master's degree and she's coming up with an algorithm, right? And so I guess it's no surprise that she ends up sort of taking that path. But I, there's, there's something about it though, that just, it doesn't really speak to sort of like that cliched sort of entrance into the CIA. Right. And so it's just sort of fascinating that, you know, that's where you end up or that's where you think that you can, can do the work because, you know, you're, you're basically on the outside of like this extremely covert and extremely powerful organization, like the central intelligence agency, thinking that you're going to make a difference, right. As a woman. Right. And it's, it's funny because I never really thought about how people became an agent. You know, it's not like the CIA puts out a Craigslist ad, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like it's crazy to think that she wasn't planning on joining the CIA. They were just watching. And, after seeing the things that she had done, obviously her little personal espionage adventure in Burma would have caught their attention. And then the algorithm that she creates, they're like, this person is is a prime candidate. And then they approach her, right? And I think we see a really important moment here. So when she applies to join the CIA, because that's the other crazy thing is they're like, we would like you to be part of the CIA. And she's like, okay, I'm in. And they're like, okay, we'll go apply for it. Now we'll let you know if you get it. (laughs) (laughs) I know we tracked you down and had this like surprise interview with you, but so she applies for the CIA and her friend Jim also applies. The two of them go back to London to visit her boyfriend at the time, Anthony. Obviously she doesn't have a lot of experience yet with lying and running a cover story. And during the visit, Anthony kind of gets the feeling that her and Jim are having an affair because they can't tell him that they've applied for the CIA, right? And her and Anthony have a bit of a falling out, and and it's really the first step into having to become someone else. And then even furthermore, once she gets the job with the CIA, they go, congratulations, you're part of the CIA. Now go tell anyone else that knew you were applying that you didn't get it. So she sits down with Jim And she tells him, like, hey, I didn't get the job. And he's kind of like, yeah, bullshit. Like, they probably just told you to say that. And then she's like, no, for real, I didn't make it. And then she starts to cry. And she says she's not crying to sell it. She's crying because it's officially the moment of the final cut, severing everyone from her life from her true reality. You know, he was the last person to know, like, she's going down this path. And now she has to cut that out as well. And it's officially... Now you're an agent and nobody gets to know. You got to wonder what that feels like. I like I can't even imagine in my own life what that what that takes, right? It's like it's one thing to apply for a job and sort of be hesitant about who you're telling because you don't want to get other people's hopes up or you don't want to get your own hopes up, especially if it's like a like a really good job, or even if you're applying to like a really good university, right? You're sort of like guarded in who who you're telling, right? And then when, you know, you make it and, you know, you would want to be excited, right? You'd want to share that with the people that you know, and you can't, especially something as crazy as joining the CIA, becoming a, you know, an operative in the CIA, right? Like that would be something badass, even if you were allowed to tell like one or two people, right? Like close friends and family, like, hey, Okay, you can't talk about this, but I made it. Can't even do that. You know, even the person that you applied for, right? In the beginning, you're like, no. You just like, it's just all of a sudden the the game begins even before you learn about how to play that game. How it 
what it takes to live a cover story, to live that lie, to like put on a mask every day. Like that starts immediately. There's no like grace period. It's no like, okay, well, you know, I got a couple of months before this starts up. So, you know, then we got to stop talking about it. Like, no, like it starts as soon as that stamp hits your file and it says like accepted, it's like, okay, you're in and that's it. And that's sort of scary and terrifying to think about, right? Well, and the day-to-day, too, like trying to... Now, not only do you have to hide the fact that you're part of the CIA and learn how to be an agent, which is would be a grueling process, you also have to have a complete cover life, you know? She's got to talk to her family about her job and try to find something that's like, you know, doesn't sound like she's down and out, but is also, it's successful enough, but it's boring enough that people don't care to ask. They're kind of like, oh... Oh, yeah, we don't we don't want to know. She was like making algorithms for some big company and everyone's like, we don't really care. But you have to keep that up when people are asking, how's work going? You go back to visit your family and they're like, how have things been at work? And you have to try to keep it believable, but not add too much detail that you're going to start slipping up and using names of people at work. And you just, the, you know, your foreseeable future, this is the facade you live in now. And being an agent would be so difficult and you don't get to go to anybody about the struggles that you're going through in this job. It would be, it would be, it's unfathomable, honestly. But she dives in pretty heavily. Like she's all in when she gets there. And I thought there was a funny moment. So she go well, she goes through the initial thing is the blue folders and the black folders, right? She goes, she becomes an analyst, which is kind of, you're in the office helping, helping out the, the black folders, which is the agents. And everyone wants to become a black folder. Finally, she gets a climb, a, the call to climb the ranks and, uh, and become an actual clandestine operative. And they start getting official missions. And you would get them from Ruth. And they always say, like, oh, they're completely random. Like, Ruth just generates the names, but they're all completely random. And then they keep her too late into her lunch break one time to get an operation name from her. And the folder comes back stamped. Operation Incessant Hunger. (laughs) It's just so funny to think of like such a significant agency in the world doing such important things or potentially dark things, which we can cover as well. And they're just joking around about operation names. Like it's just a little office joke and it could be like legitimately go out and take out this target. (laughs) So I also thought it was really interesting. I never really found that Amaryllis completely aligned herself with the views and the uh, operational tactics of the CIA. Like she, she almost never completely buyed in. Like she's going through the motions, but she's not exactly, you know, showing up to like the company lunches, you know, like she's, she's got the job and she's doing the work and she's, and she's being successful in her training and the work that she's doing and, you know, switching from be, just being an analyst working at home to actually like taking on the training to go into the field undercover. But it's you, you still you're absolutely right. You get that sense that she's not quite, you know, maybe maybe she'll cross the party floor. Right. Even though that's like politics and that's sort of like a different thing. And I'm using sort of like a bad metaphor there. But you, you're right. You do get the sense that she's not. bought in to what the CIA is about. Absolutely. And I think the first moment we really see this is the the honorifics problem. 
she discovers that honorifics are being used as part of target names, which kind of causes mass confusion when apprehending a suspect. So for us, an honorific could be something like sir, dame, doctor, whatever. It's, it's kind of like a prefix that gives you a bit of information about the person. And a prime example of this was uh, Khalid El-Masri. And he gets apprehended, right? He was, it was the name that was put out as the target, and he gets apprehended. But the problem is that El-Masri just means someone who comes from Egypt. <laughs> Like and I laugh, but it's it's, right. it's so general, right? Yeah. Like it's really it's not a last name, you know. And then Khalid is the third most common Egyptian name, meaning there's over a million Khalid al Masri's in the world, and it's just super ambiguous, right? So in 2003, a man by this name is arrested and held in a black site called the Salt Pit for four months. He's tortured, interrogated, and finally. They let him go without any sort of apology or anything once they're like, yeah, maybe he's not the right guy. And this, they only find out about this in the agency because it got leaked to the public. And it kind of leaked by a, I think by like a disgruntled agent or something like that. But it gets leaked to the public and that's how they find out. So the new agents can't even learn from the errors of the past. And she digs up dozens of cases like this as a first-year trainee and kind of confronts the powers that be to try and correct it. And they're like, well, we're not going to do anything about it, but go ahead and try. Like, we're not going to slow down the operation. And it's the first time that she sees this idea of like, if, if we let anything go through, we're going to be, we're going to feel this immense guilt. You know, if there's a nine 11, because we decided to change the way we identify targets because the, the name that we have might be too ambiguous and someone gets through because there's a lapse in the amount of time where we're out searching or there's a lapse in the intensity of our search, you know, it's going to be on you. So they go, go ahead and try to fix it, but things are staying exactly the way they are for now. She's talking to one of her superiors and, you know, isn't it better that 100 guilty persons should escape than one innocent person should suffer? And the, her higher up is like, that person was like, that was Benjamin Franklin, right? That was a quote that he had. And uh, she's like, he was talking about Americans. And so that really like speaks to the attitude that they had where they'd rather just keep on making these mistakes with the honorifics. And and this guy, he was like picked up when you think of like Guantanamo Bay style, like bag over the head, you're put into a, a van with blacked out windows, driven to this terrible place called the salt pit, right? That's the circumstances that this man was arrested, right? And so the prevailing attitude is like, well, it's better that, you know, we just keep making this mistake because eventually we'll get the bad guys, right? Whereas Amarellis sort of takes the other side. She's like, well, is it really, are we really doing good work here that we just bagged this guy and he's completely innocent and we kind of ruined his life? And they're like, well, you know, he wasn't American, so whatever. It's yeah. Like, like, oh, fuck. <laughs> it's not even like he's, associated with any of these people it's just because he's one of a million people that have this first name and this honorific like he's a Khalid from egypt that's it <laughs> like it's crazy it'd be like if there was another jonah Condro out there and you got tortured for four months and then when they let you go they're like mm, well oh that poor bastard's probably in jail for the shit that i did back in the day <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you snuck by. <laughs> so, and then we kind of hit her first 
obligatory marriage, right? Um, she ends up getting married to Antony, who we previously mentioned, and he has to go through like a bunch of background checks and everything. And this was kind of an interesting moment where like she can't tell him what's going on and he comes over and he's a foreign national, right? So they have to go through all these background checks and she just brings him to this office and just lets him into this interrogation room and is like, good luck. Just be honest. And he has no clue what's going on. He like sits down in this interrogation room and they're asking him all of these questions and he's like super nervous and kind of cracking jokes and whatever. Like it's, it's insane. It would be, it would be a hard hurdle to get past. I remember when she's recounting this moment when, when Anthony's like in the States and they drive to like this parkade, she's like, Oh, we got to put our phones in the glove box. And then they're like walking through this office. Right. And she's talking about like the other name, like, you know, when you go into like a small sort of office building and it shows you like, Oh, this doctor's on this one and the chiropractor's on number three and there's like a dentist. Right. And she's like, I really wonder if they have any idea that the CIA just like rents office space here and they're just doing like interrogations and lie detector tests. Right. Cause that's what Anthony was sort of like, okay, well here you go. And like all of a sudden there's like the CIA dude that's just like hooking up a lie detector test. He's like, what is this? Like, Man, I just got off the plane. Like, you know, like, so no wonder he's, like, cracking these nervous jokes, right? And this is sort of like the, when I think of, like, the the TV or the movie version of the CIA, like, that's the sort of stuff that you think of, like, secret office where there's sort of, like, a nondescript guy uh, who's, a, that's his job is just to, like, do lie detector tests on, on people just to make sure that they're, like, okay to, like, be romantically uh, engaged with, like, their operatives in, like, the CIA, right? Well, yeah, and it's funny when you think, like, that guy at some point in his life when he's a grandparent, they'd be like, what did you do before? He's like, I worked for the CIA. And you'd be like, oh, damn, he's an agent. No, he ran lie detector tests <laughs> in, like, some obscure office building, right? Yeah. It's a, it's such a vast scale of different jobs. But I thought it was interesting to see the stark contrast between, like, her personal life and her, her work life here. So while she's planning her wedding to Anthony in her civilian life, her task at work is to match the background noise from beheading videos to street noises in different locations to try to isolate where they could be filmed. You're supposed to be completely consumed by planning your wedding, and then every day you're just listening to beheading videos. It's it's just two completely different worlds you're living in. The stress from that, like for anybody to have to listen to beheading videos over and over at work would be insanely stressful. You probably need a therapist but you don't get one. And you also can't tell anyone you know about it. <laughs> yeah, and I think there is like this uh, really short moment where she has to review this video and every time that she rewatches it, it might have been a beheading video, she has to look at, um, there's like a grid that she overlays and she has to look at a different square every time she watches to see if there's some detail in this square that isn't jumping out ahead in front of you, right? And so like just hearing the noise of like that act, you know, over and over and over again, like that's kind of like fuck with your brain for sure. But it obviously works because that's how they end up finding the person who beheaded Danny Pearl by matching like the freckles on his hand to a known target. Like these are the tiny, tiny little details that most people wouldn't even think of. And that's how targets get caught. Um, and we end up running into Another problem that she runs into here with the CIA uh, being too secretive for its own good, kind of, 
Uh, it's, an, it's another case that they didn't get to find out about until it got leaked to the public. So this was Operation Merlin. Um, in 2000, the CIA used a defected Russian nuclear scientist to try to provide deliberately flawed nuclear uh, warhead blueprints to Iranian officials. Now, it's, it's kind of unclear whether this was to hinder their nuclear program or to kind of frame them and like entrap them into building a nuclear weapon in contravention to the ban. And I thought it was interesting that Amaryllis almost doesn't even mention the possibility of that it was to slow the program down. She just says that it was to frame them and try to get them in a trap. It really was the first sign I saw that she doesn't agree with the agency entirely and that it's just she knows it's her only way to do what she wants to do. But the problem was that the defected scientist and the Iranians figured out the flaws, fixed them, and ended up with functioning nuclear warhead firing components that were 20 years more advanced than what they would have had. <laughs> and again, it's a disgruntled former agent, Jeffrey Sterling, was the one who brought it to light because he got fired and he was pissed off at the CIA. And so there was kind of a whole thing about that about whether he was a whistleblower or he was just a grumpy ex-employee right but again it's another scenario where they're like these are things that we need to know because one of her other agents suggests doing what he calls a switcheroo like that right we'll change some components and just give them one that doesn't work and then they find out that through this leaked information that oh we've tried that before and it didn't work so you could try that again not knowing that it hadn't worked the first time and then someone's got a suitcase nuke and they just detonate it in New York or something. Whereas if they had shared that information, previous mistakes, they could learn from them and be better in the future. But of course the agency is never going to admit to their operatives like, Hey, these are the things that we get wrong. Yeah. Like it's very compartmentalized and you wouldn't think that the CIA would be that way. You would think that, okay, yeah, there's, there's levels, right? Like you go up the chain of command and you know, you, you're kind of on a need to know basis. Right. But I, it seems like it's so compartmentalized that, you know, you could have two agents that are like, one had just made a mistake yesterday, and that same agent could be about to make a copy and paste version of that same mistake, and no one's going to say anything just because of the, the bureaucratic nature and how everyone is in their own sort of silo within the, within the CIA. So it's frustrating to read. You're like, oh, man, like, this guy was probably just in the office next door or just up and up a level. Right. But because of the way that everything's structured, they're like, Nope, don't talk to the guy. <laughs> we got our own shit going on. Right. Yeah, you're supposed exactly. to be on the same team and you're talking about fucking nuclear weapons and terrorists. Right. Exactly. And Amherst with a Fox doesn't really pull any punches when she's talking about, you know, some of the things that these terrorist organizations are, are, are dealing in. Right. And like, especially like the suitcase nuke sounds like it's something like out of a movie. Right. But it's, it's very much like something that exists. Like these bombs, these pieces of technology existed in like the Soviet area. You don't, you didn't need codes, right? And then once, this, once, this, once the USSR dissolved, it was like, well, all of that sort of security and that chain of command sort of dissolved with it. And like these suitcase nudes in some cases were just being stored in buildings with like a padlock on like a locker. And you're like, these are fucking nuclear weapons, right? And so, like, it's very frustrating, and it's also very scary to read, because, but for Amarillo's Fox, it comes off like, this is this sort of, like, facts of the job that she sort of gets used to, right? Which is weird, because the the honorifics and the, you know, the picking up of innocent people 
and and that sort of thing like that those are the things that sort of bothers her but she's very nonchalant when it comes to talking about a lot of the technologies that these terrorist organizations are dealing in right like i think she's more scared about well she's certainly worried about you know bombs being set off and stuff like that but it's there's a very really weird attitude that she sort of has and the information that she knows about these nuclear weapons and so it's 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 kind of startling to read about her attitude i guess yeah i mean when you've got this information coming in every day and as an analyst she would have been seeing this from all the operations right but then she actually kind of goes down that nuclear weapons and nuclear material pipeline right and it becomes more of her specialty she talks about how there's up to 200 suitcase nukes missing from the Soviet arsenal after the collapse of the USSR. <laughs> and at the time, they were undetectable by airport security. Someone could just take one of these on a plane. It's insanity. So this is kind of the point where she really dives into the actual casework, right? And she ends up having to get, a, you know, she has her second obligatory marriage. <laughs> to a guy named Dean who ends up working for the CIA, but his background is military and that becomes very, very important later on. But their option is kind of like, well, you get married or you have six years apart with no communication and they're attached enough to want to stay together, but they haven't even like said, I love you yet. Yeah, (laughs) It's like, well, I guess we're going to get married and go overseas. And they, end up in Shanghai, right? They're married in Shanghai, both undercover, both both of them running an alias and running a different cover story, and they don't know what the what the other one is doing there. And the house that they're in is presumed to be completely bugged with audio and video, and the housemaid they have is presumed to be a spy for China. So every single day of your life is covered. And you can't talk about what your jobs are, even if the housemaid wasn't there and the place wasn't bugged. They're still not allowed to tell each other what their operations are. But since there's so, so much coverage there of their entire life, they have to live this lie constantly. And they're told, like, you know, have sex often, but not too often. You know, keep it fiery, but not too fiery. Make it look as if you didn't think that anyone was watching at all. And you have to just kind of be boring, normal people. And there was an interesting moment where her and Dean get into a bit of a fight and she goes into the bathroom to cry and she's just kind of like standing there with her eyes closed. And three months later, she gets approached by someone back at the home office to say like, hey, what was the reason you were crying in the bathroom on this day? And she's like, wait, are you guys watching us? And they're like, no, no, no. China's watching you. We're just watching China. (laughs) So it's like, that's... All of these videos of them, like everything they do, their day-to-day life, their sex life, all of that is just being recorded video and audio at all times. I get weird in a hotel if I think there's any chance that like someone might have a camera in there. But to just know that your entire life is being recorded, I I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like. And at this point, so they're both in Shanghai, they're married, and Dean was actually like, deployed to Afghanistan as a CIA agent. I really don't know how that works because he had like a military background, but he was CIA. But he had seen some shit. And you start to see the cracks in Dean's psychology, right? And you're very much like, by the end of the book, you're like, oh, Dean has PTSD. Like, you don't need a psychiatrist. You don't need to pull out the DSM-5. You're like, oh, yeah, like he has 
post-traumatic stress disorder, right? And and so not only are you in a state where you're being watched and you're doing operations for the CIA, the guy that you're fucking married to is like has has PTSD and would like sort of attack her in the sleep and he'd have moments of rage, right? And then he would be like crying immediately afterwards. So you you've almost got this guy that's like almost a psychological liability at this point, right? When they're in China. Absolutely. Well, she talks about for his birthday, she inflates a bunch of balloons and leaves them out and he gets up to use the bathroom in the dark and steps on one of the balloons and just has like war flashbacks and freaks out about the balloons being there. I thought there was one point that was kind of funny uh, where you see like the complete contrast of how they're handling things. So she accidentally leaves a scarf, I believe it was, in a taxi cab. And they paid with cash. They didn't give the taxi driver their address. And somehow, the Chinese government sends a police officer over there with her scarf to their door to return it. And the officer says, you should look after your things better. And before Amaryllis can reply in a way that a CIA operative would, kind of covert and inconspicuous, Dean just goes, why should we when you do such a good job of looking after them for us? (laughs) And she's just like, oh, god damn it. (laughs) Just like, just two totally different people, right? And we, like you said, we really start to see the cracks form and they start to fight over their different approaches. How to handle things in the world where he's kind of like a hammer, you know? He's like, we find a target, we eliminate a target. And she goes more of the peace route. And it gets so bad that one time she pours him a coffee in the morning and they have these two mugs and one of them says peace on it. And she pours his coffee in that mug and hands it to him, not even thinking about it. And when he sees it, he takes it as like a personal attack and throws it against the wall. Like, just everything else you're dealing with, with all the surveillance in your life. And now you're also dealing with this person that you live with in Shanghai who's falling apart. Yeah, this guy is wired for war. You know, when you hear about guys that become, like, programmed, like, psychologically programmed... Like, that sounds like that's what he's undergone, right? Because he's even, uh, Amarillo has mentioned that he plays video games and the environment or the places where these video games are taking place is where he was in Afghanistan, right? Like, he wants, you get the sense that he wants to go back. Like, that's just where he belongs. Like, he was trained to a point and conditioned to a point, almost like molded, to the point where, like, this is all he is now. Is this this like rough and tough, breaking down doors, shooting the bad guys with the M4 machine gun kind of a guy, right? But you're like, man, you're supposed to be undercover in Shanghai right now, bro. Like, <laughs> like, fuck, right? Well, it's like the saying goes: to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. That's right? right. Yeah, that's right. And that's who he is. He's the hammer. They're they're completely different tools. She's more of the scalpel, you know, and. He's just out there smashing everything. But this is where we really start to see the in-depth side of Amaryllis' work. When she meets Jakob, he's like a nuclear materials and weapons dealer. And she decides that she wants to try to turn him, which is a risky move, right? Because the agency kind of says, well, we'll buy material off of him as long as we can. So he's making money. And at some point, we're going to have to sell it back to somebody because he's going to get suspicious if it's not getting resold on the market. And she wants to try to flip him, but that takes a a long time. You know, there's months and months of work until you find a weak point in his humanity, you know, where you can kind of 
apply some leverage and appeal to his more kind nature, which is, I would imagine is hard to find in a nuclear materials dealer, but that's the only way you can do it, right? To make them see that like, this isn't the best choice. And we see the breakdown of how she does this over meeting him over and over and over again until the right moment. And she just, oh, she really plays him, man. It was fascinating. Like, so when he gets there, she turns on the water in case the room is bugged, right? And she talks about how turning on a TV doesn't work because whoever's listening can find that episode and take the recording to overlap it with the recording of you talking and they can delete that and clear it up. But water, running water is different all the time. And you can't do that, I guess. Not that I would not know. I'm not a secret agent. But I thought that was pretty cool. And then they sit down for this conversation and she just gets the right moment. You know, he talks about his grandfather, I think, who was murdered by the communists and, and all these other terrible things that have happened. And she just finds the right leverage, so to speak, to... I mean, it's you also kind of apply pressure, too, right? When you tell someone that you're with the CIA, you're risking blowing all your operational cover, and your target is kind of like, well, am I... Is it, do I join you or I get arrested or how does this work? So there's a little bit of fear on their end, but you also really have to make them want to join you. And keep in mind too, like there's, uh, when she first gets started with the CIA, like if you're 35, like you're not in the field anymore because if you've been doing your job, by then your cover's blown, right? Like your face is known, you just can't be an undercover agent anymore, right? And so I think at one point her boss says like, you could be undercover, and stay in a closet your entire career and never have compromised your cover, but you wouldn't have gotten anything done, right? So there's really this, this balance that Amorellis is finding, right? Where she's like, when do I say certain things or when do I approach this topic or when do I sort of push on this subject when she's dealing with these assets, right? Because you're right, like, it's it's very much sort of plain, but there's also sort of like this balance that she's trying to seek, right? Because keep in mind, this isn't the only asset that she's after, right? This Yakub guy, there's uh, she's like going and meeting other people when she's in China, even before she was in China, right? Like there's several dozen at one point, like she's looking after several. There's some CIA people that are beneath her in the hierarchy that each have like a couple assets they're working right and on and on it goes so it's not like she's just assigned to one person so she's playing this game with several different people and so yeah you're right she's she's sort of seeing this moment and then she'd like have to talk to hq like okay like this is where i got this is the information that i know like do we make the next move do i try to turn them and then and then it's sort of like well i don't know you know and then it's sort of like this back and forth between the bosses but it's it's very the way that she lays it out, the way that she talks about it, it's very much like the sort of like, it's a very slow motion game. It's not like, okay, it's time, right? Like it's it's very deliberate and slow and it isn't anything like a Hollywood movie, right? Like this takes time and patience, right? And I think that's the big thing. She never really talks about it, but she seems like a woman that has a lot of patience. Oh, 100%. And you would have to in that in that world. And then to think that, potentially a year of of warming up this target to maybe be flipped and one misstep you know one thing you say that offends them or scares them and they could be in the wind and that's it not only is that year of work wasted but your career's pretty much over your cover's blown you're going back to being an analyst you're not an agent anymore because you can't be 
Everybody knows now. You've exposed yourself. It's a huge gamble, and the tension would be insane. Also, it's probably worth mentioning that during this conversation with this arms dealer, she's pregnant. (laughs) Yeah. Like, she's just out trying to flip arms dealers, and she's got a baby in her. And, like, you would be so distracted. Like, I mean... I'm sure both of us by this point have known people that have gone through pregnancy and it's a lot of work (laughs) just being pregnant and being an agent would be a lot of work. Talking to an arms dealer would be pretty damn intense and you stack all three on top of each other, just the stress levels you would be going through. But she kind of uses it as she talks about when she can feel the baby kick, she uses it as fuel, right? She's like, well, this is why I'm doing this. I want a better future, right? And so she... She uses that to motivate her to make the changes she wants to see in the world. There's moments where, you know, even rewinding to the the first scene really connects to the the last part of the book. But she's talking about, you know, the children that she sees doing this or that, right? Or when she's in these different places, she isn't just thinking about, you know, the numbers or the casualties, like if this suitcase nuke happens or if they're able to build a dirty bomb like she's very aware of the statistics and the casualties and the injuries that could happen from these different weapons if they were to be deployed and used right against uh, american civilians but you're right she she uses like not just the thought of like american kids or north american kids like she's very aware of everyone's safety and everyone's well-being that she doesn't want to see these people in the streets, you know, end up injured or dead, right? And it's a very compassionate way to think about her work as a CIA agent, right? As opposed to Dean's methods, where he's very much like, oh, that's the bad guy? Okay, well, we're going to go in there, and we're going to kill the bad guy, and that's going to keep everyone safe. Like, that's very much his mentality. And I think there's, like, a place for that. But Amaryllis really just takes soft approach to protecting people's lives absolutely and she makes a good point when she talks about like sure if it's a last minute scenario and it's like an attack is going to happen and there's nothing we can do we can't do all the legwork to flip a target you pretty much have to take out the target right stop the gears that are in motion already but she says when you take out a target there's kids and grandkids and all they know is that the Americans killed their family member and you're just creating more terrorists. It's kind of like you're bailing the water out of a sinking boat without plugging the fucking hole, you know? And she is looking more at the long term. She wants to create a better world. And do I think you'll ever eradicate terrorism? Not really. I think we have too many conflicting viewpoints in the world, but I think that her approach in the long run is a better one. You know, try to eliminate the hate instead of just eliminate the target. And we see that afterwards when once her child is born, she has to go back to Pakistan because there's an imminent threat. And we go back to the opening scene, right, when she's being trailed by that guy. And the way she opened it up was really cool because she's like, I turn to make eye contact with him, and he dials a a number on his phone, which is, as we've seen in spy movies, which is probably the only thing they got right, (laughs) a lot of the times bombs are detonated by a cell phone, right? And she looks and makes eye contact with this guy, and he dials his phone. And in the beginning, you're kind of like, oh, shit, it's going to blow up. But it's just her target following her a day ahead of time, kind of using the CIA's own tactics against them. And then she sits down 
with one of the leaders of this group. And she's like trying to almost plead with him. Like you have a child. I have a child. This is only going to kill mostly your people. And he goes, okay, should we change the target? So it kills mostly your people. Like, is that better for you? And she's like, well, no, we don't want you to bomb anyone. And he's like, okay, are you not going to bomb anyone? And she's like, no, no, no. Only we do. You don't. You know, like, because she can't answer for the American government. He points out that there's drones flying over his country all the time bombing them. And he's like, if we can't bomb anyone, why can you bomb people? And it it really, like, I would have been like, well, fuck, I guess I got nothing for you. It's a very one-sided. It's not really a negotiation, but it's very one-sided, right? Because she's like, no, no, like, the drone thing is still going to happen. That's not going away. Oh, okay, well, what if we do this? You'll stop that? No, no, we're not going to stop. And so you're like, well, what, like, what, what do you have to even suggest to this guy that he shouldn't go through with this terrorist attack in Pakistan, right? Like, what, like, you don't have it. Like, you can't just say, like, okay, you're right. You know, the drone stuff, you know, we're going to, we're going to put all that away. Like, she doesn't have that authority. She doesn't have that power. She doesn't have that bargaining chip, right? It's not like, oh, okay, well, if you guys don't do this, we'll stop doing that. Like, she's like, no, no, that's still all going to happen. And yet she's still there trying to convince this guy, hey, please don't set off that bomb. Right? Yeah, like, oh, I'll go talk to the president. I'll let him know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they, the deal is no bombs from them, no bombs from us. Oh, okay. <laughs> let me sign a new bill. <laughs> but it's successful, right? She finds a way. And it's interesting. She kind of uses his child because his child is there. And the child has like a cough and a, and a lung problem. And she has this oil on her that she uses for her own kid. And she offers it to him. And it's interesting. She's like, oh, just like dilute it a bit. But just like inhaling it, it's essentially, it's an essential oil, right? <laughs> and uh, hippies save the world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just patchouli. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so she goes to hand it to him. And he's looking at her like trying to decide, do I trust this? agent to you know hand me something that's for my child yeah is so this she poison likes, is this an assassination yeah, exactly. attempt right and she's sitting in a room full of people that like could very well kill her like there's m4s leaned up against the wall and stuff right and so she smells some herself and they kind of find this common ground and then she leaves not really knowing if it worked but that's all you can do and i found i was really expecting like a climactic moment you know, like a peak of the intensity to this. And then it's like, well, that that's the end. Because with spy stuff, you know, it's like, oh, there's the target and there's these gunfights and then they finally get the target and then everybody's happy. Or like the countdown on the bomb, right? You're like, oh, they only yeah. have 10 seconds left and you have to cut the, you know, exactly. You, yeah. You're absolutely We don't know right. which wire to cut yeah. and you cut a random one and then, oh, it stopped and woo. Or like sped up and then we have to cut another one. And just like, yeah, just crazy shit, right? But that doesn't really happen in this book, which I think, again, just hits home the honesty of it all. Like in reality, the agents work until their cover is blown or they burn out. And she kind of hits the burnout side of things. Like she's got a kid now. She's sitting back on some other operational meetings and she's like, I just don't, I don't have it in me anymore. And her boss actually sees it. She takes a bathroom break and on her way back, he kind of stops her in the hall and is like, look, you gave us 10 years almost almost a decade you saved a lot of lives like we owe you i think it's i think you've done enough and she goes on this i thought was super cool 
she goes on to hold like these crazy little meetings, like at first with just criminals back home. And then eventually with these terrorist groups where like you'd have the Sunnis and the Shiites and they've been killing each other for so long. And she would get the younger generations together. And like at one point there's a child sitting with another child who's like their grandparents have killed each other or something. Her one child's father killed the other child's father or something like that. And she gets them to sit down together and like, and realize that we owe it to our, our ancestors to stop killing each other. Like, why should we just keep doing this? And it was really cool to see that even outside of the agency, she's still pursuing this path. She didn't just retire and that's it. I've done my thing. You know, it just never ends. Well, Amarellis, when she's speaking with the, the arms dealer in China and she's turning them into an asset, and like what she's doing with the Sunny and the Shiites, sort of like after her career in the CIA, is she's like, well, we got to do right by our parents and not make their same mistakes right. And that's what sort of ends up turning this asset is she's like, yeah, so the government that, you know, killed your grandfather, you know, and the circumstances that he was living in, and like the, I think it's like communist Hungary at the time. It's like, yeah, if you set off like a nuclear bomb, even if it doesn't happen in Europe, even if it doesn't happen on your doorstep, it doesn't happen in Europe and it happens some other part of the world, like that's going to impact you, right? Like if you think the economy's bad now, sending off a nuclear bomb is going to make this look like the boom times. Like that's, that's how she's reasoning with this guy. And so you just need to take, you know, think of what the world you're leaving for your kids, like setting off this bomb or selling these weapons you're not going to be leaving them a good place. And that's sort of what gets this guy. That's the moment where he's like, oh, okay. Yeah, well, maybe that's not a good idea. I kind of want, you know, things to be better and like to be able to get a job and that sort of thing, right? And that's, that is her method. And even at the end, she doesn't really have a bargaining chip. She's like, she can't stop the drone strike. She can't stop the U.S. government from doing what it's going to be doing in the, in the uh, missions that it's authorizing, right? And she's kind of like, well, you know, maybe just for today, don't set off this bomb. And so all these people's and their lives aren't going to be impacted and that aren't going to end and won't impact like your own child. Right? Like this guy, he's like the leader of a terrorist organization. And he's like nursing his child. And Amarellis is like, Hey, maybe let's just think about the children. And as cliche as that sounds, it works. It's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe you're right. Maybe this time I'm not going to do that. Right. And so you're kind of like, Whoa, 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 whoa. Is, is that what it takes? You know, like, but the way that she does it, the way that she gets there, it's not like she just like comes in through the front door and is like, hey, think about the kids. Oh, you're right. What was I thinking? Yeah, I'm just going to hand over this suitcase new, right? Like she really plays the long game when it comes to uh, fostering these relationships between these hostile actors. Yeah. And it's interesting that like nobody had thought about that before. Like how long has the CIA been an agency and they're just nobody ever decided to try a little bit of compassion and here she comes she and it and it works for her right and she even brings her old boss once he retires on uh on some of these missions she does trying to spread that compassion amongst these these uh religious groups right and he's like wow this works like <laughs> we should have been doing this for a long time you know well something that I don't think she necessarily discovers, but it's sort of, it's part of her method for turning assets and, and sort of de-escalating 
is she's trying to find that common thread between her and the asset, her and like the the terrorist leader, who, whomever she's speaking to, right? She's trying to find that common thread. And she says that she, you do that by being vulnerable. And usually that means you're you're giving up some sort of truth about yourself. So you're not completely under this this cover, this persona, this story, right? You're giving certain bits of truthful information so that you're appearing vulnerable to these actors so that you can gain their trust, right? And one thing that she sort of talks about that sort of becomes like the lesson or something that she she really finds effective for dealing with these terrorist organizations or these terrorists is that she says that fear is like this common denominator. I don't know if I necessarily believe that, but she sort of plays on that. What if you do that and then things don't end up so good? And she's playing off that fear to get them to change their minds about things, right? Like, hey, if you set off, like I was just saying earlier, like, hey, if you set this off, things might not be good for the kids, right? It's like she's searching for what that fear is, you know, and it and it takes time. I think it also helps that she's making her own sacrifices, right? Like when she sits down for that conversation with the leader, like she has a child at home. You know, and she kind of plays on that heartstring, you know, like we both have kids. What are we leaving behind? And really, like terrorist attacks, like hate is just an emotion, right? If you can redirect that passion in a way, you can really change someone's trajectory. But they're just living off of hate. And instead, you you kind of need to redirect that and get them to focus on the future. Like they're looking at right now. You see it. I mean, with suicide bombers, obviously, they're not thinking about their future. <laughs> Aside from some, like, like it's not like, I'm going to do this and get a payout, you know? Aside from some, you know, religious beliefs that we've seen behind it. But for the most part, it's like, we just want to, you know, inflict a wound right now. But if you can play to the future, and she got really lucky that his kid was there. Because when she went in, she didn't have any of that information. She said none of the previous reports had any information about him having a child. And the child just so happened to be there. Just to rewind... Uh, one quick second. You're talking about hate is just an emotion. Really early on, there's a moment where she's assigned to speak to this person she calls the Swede. And this guy was responsible for helping, I think it was Iran, build the centrifuges for making enriched uranium. And they're talking about this other terrorist that's sort of, that's operating within this network. I think it's like Abdu Kadir Khan. I'm going to completely bastardize that. Uh, but anyways, I believe it's the Swede that's recounting how this major player in this network of terrorists that are uh, trying to enrich uranium had his pen stolen by, I think it was uh, an Indian border guard, right? Like he was going from India to Pakistan or vice versa. And he had this this really nice pen that this border guard was like, oh, that's nice. I'm going to take that. And this guy's like, just like a young man, like probably even a teenager. He's like, well, no, what, what? And this, this border guard just did it because he had the power. Right. And so this, this con guy felt humiliated that his pen was taken and recounts it. Right. And so this is sort of the seed of hate, right. That grows and grows and grows. And there's other stuff. It's not like he just has like this pen in his mind and he just becomes this terrorist. Right. But it's, it's one thing in this chain of things that happens this humiliation that sort of breeds this hate in this guy, right? 
and Amaryllis is very in tune into, hey, if we just like settle down on making people feel hate, then they're not going to turn into terrorists, right? Very much when you were talking about like, yeah, if we kill this guy, then his kids are going to get pissed and become terrorists and, and on and on it goes, right? Yeah, that part was actually super interesting to me when she's talking about the Swede. You know, as someone that runs centrifuges for a living, when she's talking about the centrifuge systems they use to create enriched uranium, like, it's an intense system. But she really breaks it down about, like, why some of the lower-end terrorists have to use a dirty bomb and why some of them can get, you know, a suitcase nuke and really how much time and effort and money goes into getting this enriched uranium for the sake of an actual nuclear weapon and the different scale of players in that game and where they come along and how you can jump your way up the ladder, finding a a lower level seller that's selling, you know, even just the reflectors that they talk about that help enhance, you know, they reflect the particles back into the reaction and and sort of make it exponentially larger or everyone that's selling the uranium all the way along the line, the, the processing line, right? And the higher and higher it goes, the more money that's been invested, the bigger the player you're dealing with. I really liked that section. And it's funny, I had it earmarked still in the book from the last time I read it because I was like, <laughs> I'm going to go back and learn all about how, you know, weaponized uranium <laughs> is created through centrifuges because I was probably reading it early in my centrifuge days and I just never went back to read it until now. Here I am. And I was like, oh yeah, this is actually super interesting. And of course it's the Swedes, right? Well, and she sort of hypothesizes that it's like, well, you know, they're, they've got like the long history of being able to build really badass watches, right? Like the Swiss or Swedish like clockmakers in that. And so it's like, well, it's no wonder that they can build like these highly refined and very particular uh, centrifuges, right? Like meticulous sort of equipment to be able to churn out the ura- uranium for like building nuclear weapons. Right, exactly. For the sake of adding a little more information for the listeners here, we've decided to start uh, doing a little segment about where the author is now or the subject if it's not an autobiography, just so we can provide a little bit more information and a little bit more background and kind of let you know what's happened since. Because a lot of these stories, they end at the end of their career or whatever's going on, you know, with John McAfee, just whenever the conversation ends. And there's a lot more that happens after that. Or if the book was written, you know, with Mitch, we were really lucky because we got to hear some of what's happened since. So I decided to do a bit of a deep dive here on uh, what Amaryllis has been doing after the book was written. And it's actually pretty interesting. So... Naturally, her and Dean get divorced. Not a big surprise. It seems very amicable. You know, they have a civil relationship. She's like, I'm still very thankful that our daughter has this father that's such a protector and, like, is still doing something in the world. He, of course, gets deployed to Afghanistan again, just goes back to war. After they get divorced, she ends up marrying Robert Kennedy III, the grandson of Bobby Kennedy. And they met at Burning Man, which I thought is awesome. <laughs> I, I, I came across that a couple of days ago, and I just like, I'm like, oh, this is wonderful. <laughs> right? And she actually does a Netflix documentary series now. Uh, it's called The Business of Drugs, uh, where she traveled to several countries while in the third trimester of pregnancy. This is a common theme here. The show investigates uh, supply chain, social effects, legal issues specific to 
certain types of drugs, kind of the heavy hitters, right? Cocaine, heroin, meth, opiates, stuff like that. And she also speaks at events around the world about peacekeeping and, you know, terrorism and the effect of the drug trade and all that. And apparently Apple is talking about developing a TV series based on her memoir. And it's going to star Brie Larson as Fox. And Fox is actually going to be an executive producer on it. I watched an interview that was a few years old and there was sort of the loose rumblings of making a movie. And it was kind of sort of in the early stages of production. But even back then, she was like, yeah, Brie Larson is going to do this. But I, yeah, like, like you had said, they're just going to be like, well, we're just going to kind of do this as a series instead, right? I almost like not a dig on Brie Larson, but we kind of know her now as this big Hollywood star, right? And I wouldn't want this to become some big Hollywood movie or even, you know, some flashy series. I think this would be really cool as even an independent film, you know, something where you're not expected to have that spy thriller kind of feel to it, where you can really tap into the humanity of it all and something that's maybe not going to be exhilarating the whole way through. But I think it's a, it's, it's a really touching story of someone who just wants to do right by the world. And I just don't know if a big Hollywood production is going to do that. And it's always a bummer. Like we see it all the time. And I'm sure the listeners feel the same way as a reader. It's such a bummer when Hollywood puts out a movie of a book you really liked and they just ruin it. And you're like, man, this, you didn't get at all. What's supposed to happen. You don't have the character development. You missed a bunch of the story. But my favorite thing now is that these limited series are coming out. Like, I think it's awesome. You're like, you're going to cover a book instead of doing an hour and a half movie, do like eight hour long episodes. And then you can really do the background and the character development that you need. It's still really hard to cover it all, but I think it's enough that you can get the feeling across and we still get to experience it. And the people that aren't big on reading still get to experience the story, right? I got something that I want to share. And if we decide to cut this out, I think that's okay. Um, so I'm, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to put on my tinfoil hat here. If you'll allow me. Uh Oh, <laughs> it does. It is the conspiracy season. So let's hear it. This is my second time reading this book. I read it the first time about four weeks ago, uh, from when this podcast was recorded, really liked it. And I was like, yeah, I super excited to record this episode. Right. And of course there's so much more that, of course we can't share the entirety of the book because that would just be us reading the book to you. So there's there's way more details that we can't even really scratch the surface of in this episode. So when I read it the second time, of course, I already had the excitement of reading it the first time out behind me. And you can sort of read it and start to pay attention to some of the aspects of the book that maybe might have slipped past you the first time, right? Now, I'm I'm not a conspiracy guy. But I'm certainly sort of like, when it comes to anything CIA, right? I'm like, mm, what's the truth here, right? What, like, what, what are we actually, what actually happened versus what are they giving us? What are they leaving out? And it's not so much, is this a fiction? More so, is this a, a twist or a bend of the fiction, right? So one thing that I, I kind of want to throw out there, uh, a hypothesis, if you will, I'm not going to discount anything that happened in this book. I, I I really truly believe that this is a true story from front to back, right? The things that happened happened. 
of course, it's stuff about the CIA. So names are going to be changed. There's going to be some details left out. And maybe there's some fictionalization just to protect people or what have you, right? Even the inner workings of the CIA, like maybe they didn't call it like the clandestine service, right? Like they probably had a different name for it. So there's probably stuff like that that's been changed. Like I'm willing to accept all that. But the one thing that I was thinking about is that I seem to think that Amaryllis Fox had probably joined the CIA much earlier than she said she did in the book, okay? So I I fully believe that she's out now. Like, she's done. She's doing her interviews. She's making her TV shows. And on and on it goes, right? Like, I believe that she's done. But I, I think that she probably joined the CIA a lot earlier. And it's because of these little details in her childhood, right? So let's just rewind for a second. And we talked a lot about the grandmother teaching them the memory tricks, getting them to swim swim underneath the thin layer of ice in the swimming pool. They were even like running down the driveway. So it very much seemed that she was already in a way being trained, right? In the ways that you could train a kid to become a CIA agent. But then there's sort of the question of the mom and the dad, right? Dad, if you recall, at one point was working for Margaret Thatcher. It was like a throwaway moment in the book. Like he was high up, going to advise Margaret Thatcher on the the coal industry, right? And then there's another moment where her dad's in Russia, somehow has a link to Gorbachev. And there's like uh, a situation that's going on in the USSR kind of the year before uh, it actually fell. And you're like, what's going on here, right? And then there's, if you recall in the early chapters, there's this moment where uh, Amaryllis's mom is checking the bank accounts. And she's like, what's this charge for a safety deposit box? This is all stuff that's talked about in the book, right? This is not, I'm not saying anything that isn't talked about in the book. And so like her dad gets on a plane, flies home, empties the safety deposit box, flies back, And then gets on a plane again to fly back for when he's really home on the weekends, right? So there's all these sort of really weird clues that maybe, just maybe, her parents might have had some sort of affiliation with the U.S. government, right? And maybe Amaryllis Fox was working for the CIA. Now, I'm going to go forward in the book a little bit. There's this moment where Amaryllis is talking about one of her earliest memories when she's like three years old. And she's stressed out. She's like angry, upset, whatever, like she's watching her, her mother and she's like doing dishes in the house. Right. And she's got like this frown, this scowl on this frown. And then there's these people that walk by the window and all of a sudden Amaryllis's mother puts on the smiling face, right? Like just like automatically puts on the mask and it's like looking at two different women. So a part of me wants to say that maybe her mother was living under some sort of cover, just like Amaryllis was living undercover in China, especially after her daughter was born, right? So maybe it's possible that her mother, maybe her father, I don't know, there's not a whole lot of details about her dad, potentially might have been living under some sort of cover. Now, what really sort of drove this home for me is she decides that she's going to go to Thailand, right? And to get into Burma, and that's when she does the interview with, uh, with Su Kyi, right? She just happens, just happens to be in the same camp where this dissident writer is handing out pamphlets, right? She just happens to find her way into this network where she's like going into the jungle on this motorcycle to go into this treehouse where they're like making the writing these newspapers and these pamphlets. And this guy just happens to be high enough up 
in this sort of chain of like underground sort of resistance that is able to get Amaryllis and this other guy into the country to film like this this uh, uprising that never happened. So a part of me wants to believe, and this might be a bit of a stretch, but it says dirt bags in the title. We can do what we want. I want to suggest <laughs> that Amaryllis was probably working some angle, whether she was officially CIA or not, but it sounds like she was probably had the parents, the training and the means that just put her in the right place to be able to do this that I'm, I'm, I don't want to really call bullshit, but I think that there's probably a lot more to her professional career that she's leaving out. Right. And it would make sense that the CIA wouldn't want to talk about her time in Burma if it was under official cover because it's influencing foreign government elections. Right. Yeah. And that's, I, th- I think from what I understand, that's a bit of a no, no. And I, I do see where you're going. The thing with the, uh, with the safety deposit box, I was like, wow, that's, that's suspicious, you know, like, what is he doing? But then she also kind of mentions like, oh, mom ends up finding like, or I end up finding a pearl necklace. That is true. That that, uh, doesn't belong to my mom. And and it kind of gets dismissed sort of thing. And, and kind of like, oh, well, he was cheating on her and that probably has something to do with it. But I was also like, but what do you keep in a safety deposit box in? I mean, maybe it's keys to another place where you meet or something, but it there is there is some spots there that I thought kind of got brushed over that could have been a little bit more in depth, but it's also worth noting that she submitted her manuscript for this book without receiving official approval from the CIA Public Publication Review Board, which is a violation of her of the non uh, the non disclosure agreement she would have signed when she became an agent. If that hadn't happened, I think I could really see where you're going, you know, because they would have said like these are certain things you can't talk about, but. Again, like you said, with the CIA, what happened, what really didn't happen. And once again, we get to talk about <laughs> chaos. <laughs> I'm going to bring it up as, as much as I this can. This is all leading to that, to that yeah. the, the peak, the pinnacle of this, of this season. Because when, when you read that book, and, or if you just tune in to listen to us cover it, um, you really see how much smoke and mirrors are there. And you really start to realize, like, Okay, people have written books about the CIA and whatnot, but there's so much we're never going to know until it gets leaked somehow. And there's going to be a ton of shit that never gets leaked that we just don't know about. So they definitely could have told her, like, hey, you can't talk about your official cover in Burma. Or maybe she just knew, you know, that that was not, you know, it's not exactly by the book and uh, it probably shouldn't be written down. I don't know. I, I mean, I like it. I like that kind of conspiracy. It wasn't too crazy. Uh, the Earth didn't end up being flat. Um, I think I think I could put on the same tinfoil hat. Problem is, we will likely never know. But if uh, if you were feeling the same thing, definitely let us know. And if there's any parts in the book that we didn't catch that you thought kind of leans that way, shoot us a message, and uh, I'd, I'd be happy to dive into it further. There's always a chance I read this book again now with that filter because I definitely wasn't looking into it in that way when I read it, and maybe maybe there'll be something else we'll catch. Uh, so should we get into our rating of Life Undercover? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I said, when I first got into this book, I was looking for a spy thriller, and... I almost had some disappointment the first time through because it didn't turn out to be that. And uh, if I hadn't read it again, 
I, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have gotten the rating that I'm going to give it. But having read it again for the podcast, and like we've said before, reading for the podcast, it gives you a little bit more of an analytical viewpoint. And I, I really appreciated the way Amaryllis just puts it out there, the way she feels and what she wants to accomplish in the world and how all of her past, like there's some sensitive stuff in her past that, past that she talks about. We really didn't dive that much into the family life part especially your history with her father and and uh, what her mother goes through. And and I appreciate that, that she exposed all that. And she reads the audiobook herself, which I'm a huge fan of. And I also liked it because there's some pronunciations in here that, like, I'm never going to figure out if I'm reading it, <laughs> you know? So it's pretty handy. All that being said, I want to give it a 91 because... It's not it's not a spy thriller. It's not something that can be a Hollywood movie. But if you want a little bit more faith in the world and kind of a reminder that, you know, not everyone that's part of the government is just out to screw everyone over, you know, that there is still some humanity in these agencies in the right people. I think this is a great book and I really I appreciated it more the second time through. I'm gonna start by saying that I think that this book was written very well and it has a good pace to it. You're right. It's not a spy thriller, but there wasn't any moments where I was like, uh, you know, I always found myself, whether it was the first time or the second time, wanting to come back to it and wanting to get And then I was like, oh, okay. It, it, it wasn't something that, you know, some people talk about not being able to put a book down. This was definitely something like if it sat there for a day or two, that was going to be okay. But it was definitely something that I wanted to finish. So it was written well. I think she has a very good voice and tone throughout it. And and so that much I want to say. So I'm going to t- have sort of my second controversy of this podcast. I'm going to give it two ratings. Now, books sometimes find an audience, right? And and that might be because of the theme. That might be because of the content, the subject matter, that sort of thing. I'm going to say that this is a 91 octane for the general reader, right? For anyone that's just like, listens to this podcast, maybe you find this book in the bookstore, maybe you find it in a used bookstore, it's going to be a 91. It's going to be a good read. You're going to enjoy it. I promise you that much. I'm going to say this is a 94 for millennial white women. Now, I don't mean to say that disparagingly. (laughs) I I did not see that coming. (laughs) But I'm going to give this a 94 octane, which is the highest... Uh, rating that we can give on the Enlightened Dirtbags podcast. The reason why I say that is there's there's a lot of themes about being a woman, but more so becoming a mother, right? And so I think that will resonate more with a female audience, with someone that maybe be becoming a mother, maybe be thinking about being a mother or what have you. So there's definitely a sort of like winning audience. I don't want to say target audience because I don't think that this, she was trying to target anyone when she was writing this book, like, oh, we're going to market this. We're going to write this to capture this sort of area of like the reading. I don't I don't get that sense that this happened here, right? Well, and on the contrary, I think she probably, if she was targeting anyone, it wouldn't be people that already have that feeling. That's right. You know, it would be people that she wants to pass that feeling along to. Yeah, so... Because she has a very unique, unique in that she's a woman going through the CIA, which is a very heavily uh, white male dominated area. 
I think that she's going to have a perspective and a tone and she's going to elicit sort of feelings from an audience that can relate to being a mother, right? And that's why I think that it would be worth a 94 because you're going to get the CIA's sort of spy stuff. Like I said, we're not, this isn't like a heavy-duty James Bond thriller, but you inject in all the motherhood, and I think that's where it's really going to resonate with that sort of an audience. So I'm not trying to be disparaging. I honestly, like, if you're a lady and you had a kid and, you know, you're in your 30s, like, I think that this, you're going to really enjoy this book, probably more than I did. Yeah, no, I, w- I would completely agree with that. Um, reading it, you really understand why she took on the middle name of Hope because that she really is the embodiment of hope, despite being in a world where it's constant darkness in that job. You know, like we said, she one part of her job was just listening to beheading videos over and over and over again. I think for most people, hope would die pretty quick. But even after that, instead of letting that anger get to her, where she's like, we got to go out and fucking get these guys. She's like, no, I, I, think, I think we can turn it around. I think we can, you know, pass along some hope to these people and some compassion to these people and and find a better path. So I I really like the way she looks at it. And if anyone is looking for more of that, you know, spy thriller action with the, you know, climactic ending, we do have that coming up um, in the Spy and the Traitor by Ben McIntyre. So you are still gonna get some of that. Don't worry, we've got it all covered. I guess what are we reading next? Next we have An Ordinary Man by Paul Russessa Begina. Oh, that's right. Yes. So, this is, uh, for a lot of people our age, you've probably seen the movie Hotel Rwanda with Don Cheadle. Great movie. Don Cheadle, Walking Phoenix, like, great cast, great movie. Super sad. I think it's even got Nick Nolte in it. Like, hell of a cast. And, yeah, really, really sad movie. The Rwandan genocide was, it was, it was truly awful. Like, hundreds of thousands of people died. And it's really over just a cultural dispute. It's crazy. So... I haven't read this book yet. Like I said, I watched I watched the movie when I was quite young, probably too young to watch it to be honest with you. And I think it's I think it's going to be pretty sad, but we also have, you know, the side of things where again, we have someone who is trying to do the right thing through a terrible situation. But as you had mentioned in our preface episode, he's in jail now. Yeah. And we don't, like, don't really know why. So I think at the end of that one, we might have another uh, Jonah Condro tinfoil hat hey, moment. Excellent. We'll see how it goes. If you want to find me, I'm on Instagram. Just add Jonah Condro, all one word. Let me know what you're reading. Let me know what you think of this podcast. There's already some interest uh, seeping in about chaos. I've already had a couple of different people ask me, when are you going to get to chaos? When you, I'm like, we got a few more books to read, but we are building up there. So anybody that listens to this podcast and has sent me a message about chaos, we've got... One, two, three books, the fourth. So we're, we're like halfway through this podcast. We got, you know, three three books and then we're on to chaos. So it's coming. But you can find me on Instagram. Please keep sending me the messages. And I appreciate you listening. If you got any questions, you got any ideas for another season, just let us know. That's the best place to find me. I apologize if I don't respond to, to Snapchats or stuff like that. Instagram, that's where you can find me. I'm, of course, enlightened underscore dirtbag on Instagram. You know, if you're interested in what me and Jonah do outside of being literary dirtbags, uh, you can always check out our personal Instagrams. Of course, lots of motorcycle stuff, adventure stuff on my own. And uh, if you're just interested in the podcast, you can hit up the, the Instagram page specifically for the podcast at Enlightened Dirtbags Podcast. 
We've uh, just got it up recently, so we're trying to post as much promo stuff on there as we can. We're happy to hear your feedback. Send us book requests. Send us thoughts on previous books we've read, especially if you have a wildly different take. Like, if you read something and you listen to our episode and you're like, man, I saw it a totally different way, I would love to hear that. Because, like Jonah just said with his little conspiracy here, I was like, oh, man, like, I even had some questions about the safety deposit box, and I still wasn't like... I think she was an agent a lot earlier. So I love hearing a completely new take. And, you know, we still don't have a topic for the next season. So if you think you've got a good topic and some book recommendations for season three, hit us up. We're happy to hear them. And if there's any book that you've read recently that you just really thoroughly enjoyed, let us know because we're always looking for books outside of this. And I want to add one last thing because when I opened up this book, I had an old bookmark in it that I really like. It's from a store called Rite of Ritual in Calgary. It's kind of like a a spooky little, almost occult-type store that has like a lot of neat little bookshelf trinkets and stuff. And I want you guys to send me pictures of your favorite bookmark because I would be super interested to see, especially if you like have one specifically that you carry around and you've moved from book to book to book. Send me a picture of it. Let me know how long you've had it and why you like it so much. Thanks for coming along and see you on the next episode.